Researchers want to hear from patients. Patients and their families want to be involved. Why is this so hard to do? My name is Kevin Fryert. My 30-year career at Pfizer gave me a chance to learn about many facets of drug discovery and development. When I retired, I started Salem Oaks to help patients understand the world of biopharmaceutical R&D so that they can be more effective partners and shape the future of medicine. We think that if patients and researchers got to know each other as people, the conversations would be much easier to start. Each month on Unprobable Developments, I will interview scientists, investigators, and patients who are actively working in medical research and development. Our goal is to help patients and those who care about them to get to know the kinds of people working on their behalf. We at Salem Oaks love to bring you these stories of the people who are involved in the science, process, and profession of finding and developing new medicines. In our Emerging Researcher series, we are even talking to people just entering the field, and we hope you're enjoying their fresh energy and new ideas. But we need to ask for your help in continuing to bring you this podcast. As creators, we are looking for patrons who want to help us cover our expenses to bring you this service. We have established an account on Patreon that you can use to become a member of the Salem Oaks Acorn or Sapling teams. Members receive exclusive benefits that you can read about at www.patreon.com slash Salem Oaks. Thank you for your support. We truly appreciate it. This month on Improbable Developments, we are continuing our Emerging Researchers series. In this series, we will be talking to some people who are just starting their scientific careers. Our hope is that by hearing their stories, including their ambitions and worries, you will be able to learn more about what it takes to pursue a career in science. Emily McIntosh recently received her PhD from the University of Guelph in Guelph, Ontario. Guelph is a small city just outside of Toronto. I met Emily at a conference about the patient experience in 2019. She was just finishing up her doctorate at that time, and I thought it would be great to check in with her and see how things are going. Emily, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I wish I could say I was just finishing up in 2019, but as PhDs go, time was extended a little bit. So I officially defended this past summer. And my degree is officially in human health and nutritional sciences. But what I actually focused in was biomechanics. And I was interested in age-related muscle loss and how that influences balance and mobility. So older adults with muscle loss tend to fall more than counterparts without muscle loss, which seems intuitive, but why is it? (laughs) Those were some of the things that I was trying to look at. The relationships between the actual muscle component and balance responses. It sounds like a very interesting area, very PhD, like you went down to something pretty specific, kind of good boundary around it, which is is the way you have to go. You can't just go say, I'm going to go add knowledge to the world. You have to pick a place to do it. Sounds like you did. So congratulations on your PhD. You know, why did you ever get interested in science? I don't know if science was necessarily where I started, but I was always interested in the human body. 
my mom was a nurse and I think some of her curiosities translated into me on car rides to hockey and yes of course I'm Canadian so I do play hockey <laughs> go Leafs go I was always a very active person I was always playing sports and I was always interested in the human body and medicine and how it works and so I think it just progressed that way and in high school I really liked physics a lot and I don't know if I actually liked physics so much as I liked my physics teachers approach <laughs> everything was problem based and the the possibilities were unlimited he would get us to think of every possible application to a problem i do think it's funny that i ended up in biomechanics which really was using a lot of physics but it certainly wasn't the direction i was initially aiming to go i just always had a fascination with the human body and so Science seemed like a good route for me. It's wonderful to hear that there was a teacher that, that impacted you that way. You know, everyone can probably go back and say there was a teacher who shaped my life, you know, and, and by doing something that's problem-based, it forced you to think of things and think of possibilities. He set you up to, to understand how much you liked doing that. And there you went and did it. So why biomechanics? Why did you decide to focus on that? That's a great question. Funny enough, I did not take a biomechanics course in my undergraduate degree, <laughs> or I guess I did, but it was only after I did a research project. So in the summer before my final year of undergrad, I saw that there was this job opportunity working in a lab, and it was focused on age-related muscle changes. And it really interested me. I worked with a lot of older adults to begin with, and I always really liked working with older adults because I always found it such interesting work because everyone, I mean, much like what you're doing, it's so interesting to hear where people come from and what their stories are. And I feel like there's such a wealth in the older community. So I always had a great time working with them, and I kind of saw myself working with older adults as a career so it was really an appealing job position and so i applied for it very fortunately the professor took a chance on me and i i completed this project and it it seemed to highlight all of my skills unlike the rest of my undergraduate degree i was always tested by multiple choice and this was a chance where i actually got to do hands-on things and not only interact with people, but collect the data, process the data. And then it was, it was like a puzzle. It was really interesting to try to put things together. And I really, really loved it. Professor asked me to apply for this grant with her. So we did that and we were able to get the grant, which was great, but it required me to be a master's student. <laughs> so she, she roped me in, but I think it was for both of our benefits. So that was kind of how I got into biomechanics. Well, it's very interesting because it's in, think of it as, you know, the old world apprenticeships. You went out and tried work. Once you got out there. I'm not very good at memorizing. <laughs> I'm better at applying. Right. You probably learn differently, you know, more through the, the movement of what you're doing and the, you know, feeling it and talking and hearing rather than 
can I read it and remember what I'm supposed to write down? Which So that got you up through your master's degree. Did you get a master's and then PhD or did you just jump to the PhD? Yes, it was a very long and winding route to the PhD, but um, I won't go into all of it, but I ended up, funny enough, I ended up working with the same professor for all three of my degrees, the triple crown, but I wasn't intending on doing that. And so it was really important for me to get a master's degree and then decide where I wanted to go after that because I didn't know if I wanted to commit myself to many years to the same idea. And even though, even though on my master's I was actually driving the ideas, but I still just wanted the opportunity to change. And I thought it was important to show that I could work with other people and I wanted um, to have those opportunities. And as it was, I did end up working with a lot of people, but I stuck with the one advisor who's, I couldn't be more grateful to have her as a mentor because she's amazing. Once again, someone stepped in and helped you find your way by giving you the chance. Right. And just giving you the chance to do something. This sounds like fairly traditional, you know, undergrad, master's, PhD program, but there's a lot more to your story, isn't there? Could you tell us a little bit more about about Emily and what was going on during all these academic years? In the middle of my PhD, I actually got brain cancer. So that was unexpected, especially as a otherwise healthy 27 year old but i mean much like science and research it was very it ended up being very self-driven and independent <laughs> so tell us how you found out you had cancer what was the diagnostic odyssey the first sign that there was trouble happened in the summer of 2016 i was actually in oregon at the University of Oregon doing a research project at the time. And there was one night where I was woken from sleep around two in the morning, just in the worst pain in my life, in my head. Tremendously bad headache. I was vomiting. It was horrible. I mean, I ended up waking up the next day. So clearly I had fallen asleep and everything seemed okay and felt okay. And I went on with my life. Fast forward about Four months later, it happened again, but this time I was back in Canada. And so, you know, as a, a scientist who's interested in medicine, I, I wrote down all of these symptoms. I wrote down anything similar, but it frightened me that I was being woken from sleep because that's not really something that should be happening. And it also, it was a different season, a different environment, a different bed, different everything. So I still didn't go to the hospital during the actual pain part, but I went to the doctor the next day and voiced my concerns. So fast forward many months later, I ended up getting an MRI after I saw a neurologist. And at this point, they found a lesion in the brain. Even when you got to the surgeons, you still had to get a diagnosis. They saw a lesion. You know, what did they say and what did they say your prognosis was? The MRI was a very scary part because I was not expecting anything. <laughs> First of all, I wasn't expecting them to find anything, but I was not expecting any kind of immediate information. I thought it would take 
a long time to process and I would follow up weeks, months later. But the lab tech who I don't think ethically was supposed to tell me anything, she wouldn't let me leave without talking to me. And she said with the uh, most frightening look on her face, the very somber, serious look, you have to see a doctor tomorrow. <laughs> and this was a woman who had just seen my brain. So I was terrified and I had driven myself there again, not expecting anything. So it was, it was a horrible night. And I still remember that the physician's office didn't open till 10 o'clock the next morning, which just seemed like an excruciatingly long time. So I called them and I thought I sounded like a crazy person because they said, oh, when was your scan? I said, last night, but please take a look, I swear, <laughs> please. <laughs> and then on the phone I heard, oh, oh, I'll have the doctor call you. So again, not something you want whenever you're young and healthy and they looked at your brain. And so I was... I wasn't given a diagnosis right away, although I did get a copy of my radiology report and I read it. So I had some idea, but not too much. And so I went to see a neurosurgeon and he said that, he said it could be one of two things. It was either a DNET or a low-grade glioma, which are different types of tumors. And he did a neurological exam, which I passed with flying colors because I was asymptomatic. And he actually told me that the headaches were not related to the tumor, which is very interesting. And I feel like they're kind of a blessing in disguise. <laughs> and he said that it was possible that I've had this my whole life and that I should just go back to school, not worry about it. And I would be followed up in six months. So at the time, I thought that I hit the jackpot. At the time, I thought that there were only what I had heard of were benign tumors or malignant tumors. And so based on that appointment, I was under the impression that mine was benign and that I'm very lucky and I don't have to worry about it. So it seems like great news. Had a really great and supportive sister but at the time she was very clear that she wanted me to get a second opinion and she thought that would be really crucial just because it's such an important thing and so I did that I got a second opinion and saw another neurosurgeon and he agreed that it was it looked like it was a low-grade glioma and he said, this time he offered me surgery. He said I could have surgery or I could watch and wait. And either way, it doesn't make a difference, but I have five to seven years to live. <laughs> so, yeah, as you can imagine, that was a surprise. And I was pretty upset to think that both of these surgeons thought it was the same thing, yet one didn't seem concerned and the other offered me a life expectancy and i was also even more upset at the thought that there was no right choice that seemed preposterous to me there had to be a right choice but what i took from that is it's up to me to decide what that right choice is or it's up to me to figure out 
what that right choice is. So at this point, I took it upon myself to approach it like a case study and do my research. And so when I say research, I don't mean entering things in WebMD or Google. <laughs> I actually went to the primary literature. And so I went on PubMed and I read every neurosurgery journal on low-grade gliomas in the last probably decade. It's important that you got your second opinion. And often we look for second opinions when we've gotten news that we really don't like. And, and it sounds like, like we don't like the plan they have going forward. In this case, they were like, hey, there's, you'll be fine. You know, don't worry about it. It's, you believed it was benign. And so that second opinion actually opened your eyes to, maybe I need to learn more. And so you went and learned more. What did you learn, you know, looking at a decade's worth of, of neurosurgery papers? To me, there seemed to be a very clear choice, which it kind of shifted my perspective of uh, the medical system. And when you think about neurosurgeons, they don't just deal with the brain. They deal with the brain and the spine and motor nerves and all of this stuff. And so there are a lot more spine surgeries than there are brain surgeries. And even within the brain, you're looking at stroke and aneurysm and all sorts of other things. And so whenever I read all of this literature, it kind of became clear to me that the two neurosurgeons I saw were not specialists in this area. If I was able to take a week and really dive into it, and let's be honest, I was diving into it with a purpose that most people don't have the same kind of motivation and passion and drive whenever they're researching. But with everything, I approached it as a case study. And what what was kind of interesting and what I found encouraging was that I seemed like an outlier in most studies. And so, again, if you look at it with the perspective of these neurosurgeons, if you make most of your decisions based on means or the averages of a population, then I bring trouble into that because I'm an outlier. I'm younger than most. I'm healthy. I went in without symptoms because most people present after they've had, say, a seizure or numbness or loss of some motor skills, and I was going in perfectly healthy. And there was, my tumor was smaller than a lot, and it was in an area that was deemed non-eloquent. So what this means is that it's not an area that's critical for a specific purpose, like speaking and movement and stuff like that. So I did win the lottery in terms of tumors, but only in terms of the location of it, not quite the signature. And so what I decided through all of this was that instead of this tremendously difficult decision that is such a burden placed on me, maybe it's an opportunity. Maybe this is an opportunity to try to heavily deal with this disease before I got symptoms, and maybe I could prevent symptoms that way. And so that was my thought, but I decided that what was most important to me was to talk to a scientist, talk to someone who's specifically working in this field, 
who really knows their stuff to talk about rationales, possibilities, the potential for clinical trials, all of that. And so I found myself in a third neurosurgeon. I found him through reading papers and looking at their specialties online. And I saw that he had published a number of papers in this area and I sent him an email. <laughs> I remember at the time, you know, in academia, whenever you send emails to someone who's who you don't know, have no contact with, you don't always get a reply. <laughs> They're really busy people and if you're looking at busy people, this guy is a brain surgeon and a professor and he seemed like the busiest of busy people. So I took a very long time to make the most concise yet informative email that I possibly could and I sent it off and, you know, prayed to the heavens that it would get seen. And I got an immediate response that he was out of office. <laughs> and so I thought, there's no way on earth I will hear from this person. But sure enough, later that day, he did respond and he met with me later that week. Yeah, he's the surgeon. I remember it felt like I was doing a proposal whenever I asked him to take out part of my brain. If, if you'll take me. I think it's great that he got back to you and listened to you as someone giving a proposal because you clearly probably came in and he was like, whoa, you really studied on this. You're not just asking questions, looking for a better answer, but you're looking for, you know, someone who's deep into this science and you've gotten there yourself so you can have a good conversation. Absolutely. I feel very fortunate for a lot of reasons. Like I said, I spent a lot of time on the email, but also I was emailing from a academic account. So I do think that that helps. And my signature was that I was a PhD student in neuromechanics. So again, it, I feel like it was different than if I was emailing from my little pony at hotmail.com or something. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And it's not everybody who can come through to somebody like that and put the effort into making it a concise email that states the problem in a way that that person can process it. I included a screenshot of my MRI as well. Just because I thought, let him decide, like, even if he couldn't meet with me, but agreed that this is non-surgical or this is surgical or something, I thought that could be helpful as well. Oh, yeah. The more information he has, the more targeted his answer can be. Driving for the right answer of what to do. So tell us, what, what did you do? What did you end up doing? So he completely agreed with me. It was, it was a very interesting first meeting, I must say. Um, first of all, he gave me loads of time to ask anything I wanted. So that was really, really nice and comforting right off the bat. But it was probably not like a meeting that he had had. And it certainly wasn't like a meeting that I had had before. Because to me, it was all about science. Like, let's talk science. Let's talk rationale. Let's talk what we know, because I had already had the appointment that kind of got the emotion aspect out of the way. I had already cried about the fact that I was dying. And I don't want to, sounds like I'm minimizing it. Of course, the emotions were high and there was, 
I, I sound like a robot if I dismiss them like that. But realistically, I had a problem and I wanted to figure out what the best solution was. And to me, the best solution was talking logically and rationally about this problem with this expert and deciding on the right path and making a decision. And that's what we did. And so we decided based on the evidence available that surgery was the best option. And when I said before that I had the, you know, the lottery winner of tumor locations, the location of mine was in a place that is very common to be removed in epilepsy patients. So in individuals that are having seizures that can't be regulated by medications, that's an area of the brain that's commonly taken out. And so this brought me a lot of comfort, the thought that there are a lot of people walking around without this part of the brain. And according to my neurosurgeon, who I really trust, he seems to think they're fine. So I thought, great, this is it. This is my right choice and let's do it. And so once I committed to the surgery, I didn't allow a shadow of doubt into my mind because I kind of thought, you know, what's, what's the point of that? I've signed and this is what I want to do. I've looked at the evidence. I've done my research. I found this great neurosurgeon. This is what I want to do. And so I remember buying over-the-counter sleeping pills from the night before, just thinking, how on earth am I going to be able to sleep before surgery? I didn't even use them. <laughs> I slept like a baby that night. I remember uh, my partner at the time, we're not together anymore, but uh, we walked to the hospital together and it was just, it was a nice sunny day. It just, it was what was happening. I had actually made care packages for him and my mother because uh, I was like, hey guys, you know, I get to be asleep for this. You're going to be awake and potentially having to deal with one another. So here is a tool that you can use to uh, entertain yourself. I just thought, you know, it must be tough for them not having any clue what was happening next and also being conscious for that. <laughs> I, the confidence that I had in my decision and my surgeon held through the whole time and uh, leading up to it, I think my partner and I just kind of joked about all of the different things and I think it was really nice to have a partner who shared the sense of humor where we could do very dark jokes with one another in a way that was entertaining and eased tension as opposed to being overly concerned about things. It creates a good outlet, a good outlet for your anxiety. Yeah, we joked about the different ways that I could mess with him afterwards. <laughs> So when did you feel confident everything was okay afterward? I was being wheeled down the hall in this uh, hospital bed. And I look up and I saw my surgeon was there. I was like, oh. And I would like to think that I asked him, hey, how did it go? Um, I did not. I, uh, I was dizzy and I had terrible ringing in my ears and I was nauseous and I couldn't really see well and I just thought huh and I looked up to him and I said 
hey, like, you said that you might overheat my fourth cranial nerve. Did you get my eighth? <laughs> For all the brain surgeons out there, that was a really funny joke. I, I mean, I, I asked him in seriousness because I, <laughs> I thought it could be my vestibular nerve because of all of the side effects that I had because those are similar to the side effects that you'd have whenever your vestibular nerve is stimulated, which I had done in a previous in-lab study. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, no, I did not. In a very confident way. And I thought, oh gosh, what did I just say? <laughs> but then I thought, you know what? I have a memory. I remember the two different cranial nerves. I remember, and not only did I have a memory of it, I applied it. It seemed like a logical conclusion to get at, as opposed to the thought that, you know, you did just have your brain drilled into. It was loud and <laughs> it was a traumatic experience, but I found that was very comforting that the thought that I still had critical thinking and memory. And then I looked down the hall and I saw my partner there and my sister. And I thought, oh, I've got to mess with them. <laughs> and so I definitely waited until my surgeon was out of earshot so that he wouldn't think anything was wrong. Then I turned to my boyfriend and said, hey, I remember you, Matt. And his name is Mark. <laughs> <laughs> it was my opportunity, and we had a good laugh. And my, I just love the way that you, you were present with yourself as you were thinking through, why am I feeling nauseous and dizzy, and, and why are my ears ringing? And then you said to yourself, oh, this is good. My brain's working because I'm... I'm with myself. I'm, I'm thinking through these things. I just love that. And then the fact that you're able to signal it just through humor, that everything's, everything's good, guys. I think it's very interesting in hindsight because any one of us can be asked, what is important to you? What are factors that affect your quality of life? What, are, what is the most important thing to you? And it's not an easy task, and it's not necessarily possible to be super introspective of yourself in just a non-threatening circumstance but at the time and upon reflection I was like wow I was evaluating what was important to me and whether or not I still had those capacities I've always liked making people laugh I didn't realize it was such a high priority <laughs> how did this impact your studies toward your PhD switching advisors and going back to that um, to Lori, who I spoke so highly of at the beginning, after my surgery. So my fourth cranial nerve was actually overheated. <laughs> that was a side effect of the surgery. So that's the fourth cranial nerve. And I knew that going in, it took three months for that to be resolved. And so what that looked like was double vision. <laughs> Thankfully, it was vertical double vision as opposed to side by side so i wasn't bumping into things and it was really not too terrible but it meant that i couldn't read so not really possible to do a phd if you can't read i mean i'm sure people do do it but for me it was not an option it turns out that 
the tumor that they got from my brain, it was cancerous and it was actually a high grade tumor. So if we go back to the first surgeon not wanting to see me for six months and also thinking that I was born with it, that was very wrong. And it had grown half a centimeter in the three months leading to my surgery. So it is scary to think about what could have happened because it is likely that my first symptom would have been a seizure and I was still driving at the time. So all of that's scary. But why I'm going into this is that I actually ended up doing radiation and chemotherapy. So initially I was planning to return to my PhD as quickly as I could kind of read again. But since I went through with the chemo radiation, I ended up back in Toronto, which is about one hour from Guelph. So the radiation sequence is six and a half weeks of treatments Monday to Friday. So it just wasn't physically possible to maintain studies at the time. So I returned to the studies back in a few months later, whenever I was back in Guelph and when I had started chemotherapy. So how it changed, it changed my perspective on things, as you can imagine. And so for my PhD qualifying exams, I got to select four different competencies that I thought would be helpful to my degree and sort of my approach to life. And so I ended up adding health policy as one of my competencies, which I wouldn't have done previously. And so for this, my whole experience, I just thought, what do people without advanced science degrees do? How do people approach these problems? And like, how does our healthcare system respond? And what constraints are they confined to? And so I decided to have this as a competency because I thought it would help me later on. I was able to swing that with my committee because I did studies with the aging population. And so I framed it in the sense of caring for older adults and what are the healthcare crises that we face soon with the so-called silver tsunami. So I would say those were the biggest changes to my degree and just thinking about things more from a patient perspective. Because as scientists, we often approach problems as this is the biggest identified problem and these are the concerns. Whereas having experienced it as a patient, I thought, no, but I want to know about that. Why didn't you tell me anything about that? Like, what about their quality of life? Like, sure, they lived for five more years, but were they happy? Did they enjoy their five years or what was happening there? So I brought that perspective to the group where I found I would. I would push things to try to bring in a new way of looking at it or incorporating patients or whatnot. It's very interesting how this event, your, your, your diagnosis, the surgery, the chemo, the radiation after it took a big chunk of time out of your PhD. It it delayed it, but it also widened your perspective, which I think is extremely valuable. And extremely valuable to someone who's looking to hire a new PhD. Wow, it's a PhD who's got a different perspective and it's broader. And what you just said there is it's 
you were able to do this competency because you'd been working with old people since, you know, your first research project. And when you're working with the elderly, you see their vulnerabilities all over the place. And if you can now relate to them, it's just a much different uh, ethos and much different wisdom that you can bring to the, the problem. So let's talk about that a little. You've gotten this great achievement. You've got a PhD. It's like a lifetime thing. You know, you get your doctorate. You did it under extremely difficult circumstances. But now you're making the leap into the real world. What do you want to do next? At the start of my PhD, I was very gung-ho to be a professor, go for a tenure-track job, and focus on research. My love for research hasn't left me, but I would like to go move myself into the healthcare world. Since my surgery, I've advocated for loads of patients, mostly because it always bothered me because I made, I feel like I'm the gold standard of patients. I made great decisions and I self advocated. I found my way through the system, but I was confident I have a very good scientific background. I can speak with all of the jargon that the physicians are talking with, and I have a very good understanding of things. And so I wouldn't say it was easy for me. It took me three opinions and I put a lot of work into it, but I would think that it would be easier for me than most people because of my background. And so because I was always concerned with what do other people do? How do other people approach this? It became, it was easy to see that I was going to get into advocacy and helping others. And through those experiences and my own, I feel like I've identified a lot of gaps. And so I would like to fill those gaps. <laughs> and the, the biggest areas that I see that would improve with research, the biggest areas that could be improved, I think, are research translation. So there's a lot of great research out there, but clinically, it generally takes around seven years to get into practice. And I think that we could do a better job speeding that up. And what I realized with the three different neurosurgeons is that specialists aren't always specialists. And so for me, I thought it would be great to develop modules or change that. Either get people up to the, the capacity or at least, I don't know what the barriers to re-referring me were. But I think that what it really highlights is that in any kind of rare or uncommon condition, if you're not seeing the true specialist in that area, then it, it affects your diagnosis and your prognosis and your quality of life to connect people with specialists. And I think that we're at this point where it's possible right now, you know, like the, the pandemic has brought a lot of hardships into the healthcare system and in every system, but it's providing us an opportunity to connect people that maybe wouldn't be connected previously through e-medicine and telemedicine. And so maybe we can use this as an opportunity to connect people with the physicians who would be best to treat them. And maybe we can have them treating them from a distance through their own closer resources. So that's one area. 
Yeah, and, and building on that, you could just, it's, there's a re-referral that you could do, but there's also consults. And consults can become, you know, as powerful because you could be doing telemedicine with the world's expert in whatever it is you need while your doctor's taking the instruction personally, doing the physical exam, doing the neuro tests, doing whatever um, is required under the guidance of that world-class expert. And because I do so much work in rare diseases, a world-class expert is probably, you know, there's less than half a dozen of them in the world for most of these diseases. And so if you can get one of those five or six people to, to leverage their ability through the technology that the pandemic's opening up for us, wow, that would be a different world. <laughs> I think one thing that helped me too as a researcher was, you know, I was very nervous about initially sending that email. But what I realized as a researcher is that, you know, if you're studying a certain population and it's a rare population, you need these patients to do research. And if you're studying them, chances are you're very interested and invested and you want to see these patients. So I feel like that took some of the burden off. Let me turn the tables here in our interview a bit. Um, you know, I once stood at the end of my academic career. Uh, I guess it was in the middle of mine when I, I leaped into my work career. But I've been there before. I've been through this. I'm on the other end of that tunnel. What questions do you have about, that for me, about navigating the next chapter? I see a lot of advantages in my experiences and how I approach them, but I could also see it as a risk for an employer to take a chance on me as someone with brain cancer, which is an uncurable disease. Do you have any thoughts on how to approach, how to market myself as a opportunity and not a risk? <laughs> I, I think you do what you do in all interview situations, which is reflect on past performance. So you were faced with a huge decision and you analyzed it, you researched it, you got in touch with the right people, you found more people, better special. You did all those things. You were taking initiative, clearly motivated, but, you know, by, by this thing in your head, but you did all that and you, then you made that decision and followed through with it. That's why you tell the story because you put it out there. The uncurable part, we've all got uncurable things we don't know about yet. Right now, you're not suffering from brain cancer. You're suffering from the potential for that to happen. And yours may be the same or higher or lower than mine. And so I think if I were you, I would embrace that and say, this is how I apply what I've learned from these books and, and my, my academics. This is how I apply it to real life things. It's a fantastic story to share with them. Any tips on networking during a global pandemic? <laughs> Well, one thing is you could come on a podcast and start broadcasting yourself out there. I know this one called Improbable Developments that would do that for you. Um, and it's, it's why we're doing the Emerging Researcher Series, because we know it's an issue right now from some of our favorite people. Um, I think networking is a, it, it's a matter of will. 
you, you just decide to do it and then you have to go do it. And there's so many tools to network with now. The social media tools are out there. Fantastic. You can, you can find contacts there, um, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. If you're looking at it as I'm reading this like it's the, not the classified ads, of, but the, its job postings are out there, even though people may not be saying, we've got a job available and here's the, you know, the salary and here's the education requirement. They're asking for things. They're needing things. So connect with those people. Go to people you know who know people and people who are in a similar situation to yours. So other brain cancer patients, other rare disease patients, other, other people who've been through surgery, you know, you can, you can kind of broaden your filter there. But when you start talking to those people and get into that community, it just opens up your network because those people aren't just those things. They've got education, they've got job titles, they've got companies they work for, they know people. So everybody you talk to could be, you know, the lead to the next job. I think ultimately kind of my dream goal would be to have kind of a company that's dedicated to research translation and knowledge mobilization. Like, again, I think that my strengths as a patient were in my ability to have and use knowledge and find it. And I think that Everyone benefits from patients that are more knowledgeable and in tune with their thing. So the their physicians benefit from it, they benefit from it. So I think ultimately that would be an amazing goal, but at this point I do not have the means or the know-how to create a business. You have done that. <laughs> do you have any like it obviously was later on, but would, can you shed any light into how that would work or the good side about creating a business is your employer is not going to ask you if you've got the experience in the field <laughs> right you're just saying i'm going to do it and you know what you're going to learn from a fire hose for years because it just keeps coming the actual creation of a business all those like the administrative side of it is time consuming that's one lesson so you have to set aside time to do that this the other thing is is you can do anything you want with it and so don't be afraid to pivot don't be afraid to take a risk i know one thing i'm learning is i really wish i would have you know had more financing behind me you know talk about the idea talk about the idea before i started going out there and doing things um because once you start doing things then you have to do things and you don't have the time to go line up those finances so that's something to learn. I also think with what you're talking about, you know, translating research and mobilizing knowledge, there's like jobs that you may not think of that could teach you how to do some of that in a different way. And I'm thinking like a, like a journalism job, you know, a health, health reporter, you know, for, for, a newspaper or television station, something like that, or just a consultant to those people. And there's so much, you know, pseudoscience out there. I think that there's roles where where people are saying, so what's the real science and how do we say it in a way that that the general public understands it? It's explaining that science is 
kind of a methodology, it's a methodological approach to things as opposed to like it's it's always fluid. And I think that's what lay people are struggling with because it's like, well, science said this and now it's changing. How does that how is that science? Well, it's always changing. We're trying to prove ourselves wrong normally, you know, it's the null hypothesis, not that mindset, that's a scientific mindset. It's not a marketing mindset. It's not a political mindset, you know, where it's like, we're going to go solve the problem. It's like, no, we're just going to ask more questions. You know, if you really want to start a business, just do it. You will, as I said, you'll learn quickly. It looks great. If you need to go do something else later, it looks great on your resume. I started this business, it failed, but here's what I learned. The other is, you know, as you mentioned before, we we're recording, but you're working with somebody who's got his own startup and you help somebody out and you learn the ropes through them and you see what goes on. So just keep your eyes open and take notes. I want to thank you so much for spending time here and sharing with us. If, there, if someone wanted to connect with you, where can they find you? Thanks for having me. I frequent Twitter. Um, <laughs> on there, you'll find me posting about a lot about brain cancer, but then also about the Toronto Maple Leafs. As I mentioned, I am Canadian and an active hockey <laughs> follower. But if you would like to follow it at M-C-I-N-T-O-S-E. Anywhere else I can reach you? Yeah, my email address. Again, it's not super clear, but it's E-M-C-I-N-T-03 at uo guelph which is g-u-e-l-p-h dot c-a excellent and i'm also on linkedin yep please subscribe to improbable developments wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends to give us a listen